Interstate Batteries offers a wide variety of batteries for your everyday needs. Stop into one of their thousands of retail locations and talk with a battery specialist about batteries for your truck, trail cameras, and even those weird batteries for your rangefinder. Interstate Batteries even offers cell phone repair in certain locations. For more information, visit interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Welcome to Maximize Your Hunt, the podcast dedicated to those who want the most out of their hunting property. This podcast explores land management, habitat improvement, and hunting strategies that will help you maximize your time in the field. Follow along as industry professionals that live and breathe white-tailed deer share their secrets to success. And now, the founder of Whitetail Landscapes, your host, John Teeter. Hi, I'm John Tito, Whitetail Landscapes. This is Maximize Your Hunt. Welcome back, everybody. I am happy to be home. I am home this week, and I'm trying to relax, enjoy myself until I get back on the road. I am super excited. Uh, as of recent, I've had a chance to work with a lot of clients, some pretty sizable properties, and those projects are really big properties for me. You know, a lot of my clients are anywhere between, I want to say, 40 to you know, 120 acres on average, I would say somewhere in that 80 to 90 range. It's all over the place. And it's interesting, everybody in the areas that I work on, everyone's at a different level. And some of the clients that I've been working with recently are at a much higher level than some of the clients in the past. That's not degrading those folks, but you know, what their objectives are, their approach, tactics. So your level of sophistication, your ability to kind of surround yourself with, with better results or better people to get you to those points are really critical. And I really enjoy that. Most of my clients are struggling just to see deer. And that's a little different from other parts of the country, you know, where they're trying to target older age class. We're just, we're just not there uh, as a region. And um, when I get clients like I've had recently, I've been really excited just to, to kind of level up. It gives me a chance to kind of explore some new topics. Coming up, a podcast, I actually talked to Perry Batten today from Drury, we're going to be doing a podcast. Oh, one announcement. Jim Ward, and I mentioned this previously, I talked to Jim, I don't know, a week or so ago, and then the week before that. We're not going to do a day together. We, we were. We're actually going to meet up. We're going to talk about maybe something for next year. You know, he was doing something for him and I to get together to give you know folks a chance to kind of meet up with us and and talk strategy, et cetera. We're, we're not going to do that. You know, again, my, my Habitat Day that I'm going to have in July, I'm going to be doing some marketing for that. I've got a basically a, a, a gentleman who's essentially an intern going to be working for me and he's going to be supporting, you know, that part of my business. So, you know, I appreciate everybody following me and listening to the podcast. And of course, you know, I think it's important that you just recognize we're trying to put a lot of content out this year more than last. And I got a great guest back. Colin for Legendary Habitat is back and we're going to talk about his property and things that happened with him this season personally. So I think this is going to be a good, good conversation. Hey, Colin, are you on the line? I am. Thanks for uh, having me again, John. Yeah, Always a pleasure. That's good. And we'll probably have you back, I think, when we have Brad back so we can talk a little bit about some things that you guys have done together. What's going on with you? What's up in your world? Oh, man, just uh, staying pretty busy. I just moved into a brand new house and uh, got a shop. So I've been uh, pretty occupied with, with that over the last couple of weeks and finally getting settled back in and uh, booking a bunch of clients, you know, out through in the, oh, man, I'm, I'm through into into May right now, several different, you know, jobs and a lot of different consulting. So 
yeah, I got a lot of different stuff going. I'm excited. I got some great previous client properties that I'm going to be working on. So that's always really fun for me to get it back out on some properties that I've done work on and kind of analyze them, meet back with the property owners and, uh, you know, go over their season, how things went, what changes we might need to make and stuff like that. So, so one thing I was, I was talking to my partner about today and we're talking about a bunch of different topics. This one being, you know, the most important it's, it's amazing to me, you know, where you have these clients and they're inclined to have you consult and then you do a little bit of work and, you know, you get to go back and you get to build on some of the challenges you've experienced on other properties and you just bring this wealth of knowledge to the table versus where you're just consulting and they say, okay, got your plan. Thank you very much and have a nice day. I've actually really seen a departure in success for a lot of those folks that don't have the follow-up work. And I don't know if you've noticed that, but in my particular area, if you're not doing things very, very exactly, like, and I hope this doesn't come off as, as arrogant to anybody. Listen, when you hunt really tough deer and there's not a large population, you have to be really specific with your improvements. And uh, I just did a podcast last night with uh, Mitch Shirk from uh, Pennsylvania Woodsman. And I talked about how to build bedding areas. It's really in-depth. It's probably one of the more in-depth podcasts on how to actually fundamentally build podcasts. So listen to that. that. That should come out next week. But Colin, the point I'm trying to make is some of these improvements have to be done you know, and really, you know, they, they need to be fine-tuned for your landscape. So maybe we can talk a little bit about that today and maybe some of the things that you saw in your own personal property that you'd like to change this year. Yeah, absolutely. You know, 100%. That, that ties right into some of the stuff I wanted to, to uh, discuss. I, I Unfortunately, just been really busy and haven't even been on my own podcast. <laughs> um, but hopefully going to be firing that back up and bringing on some more guests and kind of recap the season more. But I figured I would give a little bit of season recap on here uh, for those who kind of been wondering. Um, so, yeah, I had a pretty challenging season this year. Um, I had a lot of different outside um, unexpected challenges and, and stuff that I was facing. Um, and so I'll just kind of take you roughly through how my season went early to, you know, basically through, kind of through pre-rut in the late season. Um, so it started out pretty good um, just to give everybody kind of a little background on, where I'm hunting the property. Um, this is a 37 acre farm in Manistee County. So we're up in the Northeast or I'm sorry, Northwest, um, Michigan. And, uh, so we've had this family farm for a while. I know I've spoken about it in previous podcasts and, uh, to kind of paint the picture for everybody. This is, it's about, it's 37 acres, but it's really only about, it's right around 18 to 20 acres of actual deer habitat, um, the rest of it is just kind of a two track and a yard and, you know, we, it's a family farm. So everybody comes up and we do a lot of other activities, you know, by the, the heart the house and the barn. So, um, I've kind of dedicated that back, you know, 18 and 20 acres in my deer habitat. And, um, and then additionally to that, and that, that's actually a, a wide open field, basically it's an old field, um, you know, right in that, I would say that third stage of succession. So we're starting to get some you know, volunteer trees, and I've got some, you know, um, some white pines, some red pines coming up in there. But it's, for the most part, it's just a grassy, um, you know, upland field. And uh, so it's very poor soil, as I've talked, you know, previously in this podcast, you know, real sandy soil. So it makes it real challenging to, you know, grow and really get a lot of that good early successional regeneration that you see in, you know, a lot of these Southern Michigan farms and stuff like that. So 
Um, so that's been a big challenge because a lot of my betting is not on my, on the property and in total on this 18 to 20 acres, I've probably only got about maybe two acres of actual woods. Um, and you know, that's been pretty heavily cut. Most of that's just been Aspen and some willow and, um, some autumn olive, which I've been, you know, slowly picking away at. So just to keep in mind, I'm only dealing with a very small portion of cover and, you know, I mainly try to put as much food on this property as I can. And for the most part, try to rely on, uh, you know, deer bedding on the neighboring properties, which is a big, a big challenge, you know, as, as you talked about and, and, you know, being a consultant and seeing all these different properties, you know, the main focus of a lot of properties, what I'm trying to do is hold deer and have that security cover, especially for daylight and pure buck activity. So, in addition to this 37 acres, I also have had a 40-acre permission property adjacent to our property. And uh, I've had permission to hunt that probably the last 10 or so years. And it's a really cool property. Uh, it sets up really nice. It's got some great terrain features. And um, so I know mainly where most of my mature bucks want to bet in that property after doing a lot of in-depth analysis and, you know, through mapping and, you know, boots on the ground. and um, Unfortunately, I, uh, I didn't quite lose my hunting property or permission this year, but I had another hunter come in. The landowner wanted to have another hunter come in. So obviously that was out of my control and, uh, you know, just some challenges that I had to work around. And, uh, obviously I'm always welcoming to other, other hunters, um, you know, out of my control. Something I can't, um, can't, uh, do anything about, but uh, so I had to really adapt and change my hunting strategy this year. Um, and of course, this year I went into the season with the goal of to try to target a four and a half year older, you know, buck on our property. And um, that was a pretty, pretty high goal, high bar that I set. And um, so I wanted to see how it was going to go. And I knew full well going into the season that might not, you know, I might not kill something because, you know, I know I'm hunting the top you know, two to 3% of bucks, you know, in my area. So, Hey, Colin, uh, just just a question for you. Can you kind of go through your, your deer herd, maybe break down the numbers approximately in your area and, you know, how many are at that, maybe at three or four year old age class, at least buck wise. Yeah. So based on my trail camera data observation, hunter observations, um, I would say, Starting the year, I probably had right around three to four, maybe five, I would say kind of core area, you know, home body three-year-olds on our farm. Um, and then I had probably, oh, a half dozen two-year-olds and, you know, probably, you know, close to another dozen, you know, year, year and a half-year-old bucks. So those are good. We, num- those are pretty good numbers for most areas. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and, and keep in mind, we are in an APR county, um, which has really helped. Um, you know, to, to really get those bucks to at least two and a half and a lot of them to three and a half. Um, so, you know, that's something to keep in mind and something else we can kind of dive into more if you want is kind of, which what I was leading with this is once you hit that three and a half year old range, every property in area is a little different. It's almost like you kind of hit a, a buck glass ceiling, if you will, depending on what your neighbor pressure is and your habitat and stuff. Um, so that's kind of, you know, that's kind of where I was at with the property going into things. And, uh, so, you know, overall I kept the property, property, uh, 
hunting pressure really low and uh, hunted uh, like once or twice early season, mainly just stayed off the property. And uh, I waited for a really good cold front to come in. We had one uh, October 22nd, and that was my first morning sit of the season. I saw six different bucks and passed uh, a really nice three-year-old um, that I was calling, uh, it was uh, mainframe seven. And uh, so really great hunt. And then uh, kind of came into the rut. Some of these bucks dispersed a little bit. I had a few other bucks come onto the property, but it was really challenging with a lot of other hunting pressure, trying to get any buck in daylight on our farm. Um, I did have one of my neighbors shoot a really nice, I believe it was probably a three and a half year old. He might've been four, but he was a really nice non-typical deer. So uh, that was kind of, you know, most of my season. I was real happy for that neighbor. Um, he was a, one of our uh, good neighbors that we got along with great. He does some habitat work. He's in, involved in QDMA. So really thrilled to see him um, kill one of those bucks. And so overall, you know, there's a lot of different challenges, but, you know, depending on where you want to go with this, one of the things that I really took away from this season, you know, obviously it's it's hard. You know, there's a lot of different challenges that we, we all face with our property and within our hunting strategies. Um, but one of the things I really wanted to kind of take away and some things I learned from this is adapting your hunting strategy around other hunting pressure and and, and also taking that information from your hunting season and applying it to habitat improvements you need to make around that hunting pressure and things you need to do to your property. So that was some things that, that I've really been thinking about for new habitat improvements I'm going to be doing on our farm this year. Yeah. So I'm, I'm interested in the hunting pressure. I deal with this quite a bit in my particular area. Nobody's managing deer specifically for older age class, right? We're shooting year and a half, two and a half, some guys are shooting them not ethically. I mean, there's a whole host of different issues that happen around me. And sure, I, I want to know what your tactics and approach are after having, you know, this, this season that was, that was more difficult than maybe other seasons just because of the relative hunting pressure. Speaking about the volume of hunting, let's, let's kind of diagnose like how frequently the other guy was hunting or, you know, other people were hunting in the properties and how that impacted the deer movement. Yeah, so that was a challenge too. I was trying my best to, you know, kind of communicate and work work well alongside the hunter as far as, you know, when he was out hunting and stuff like that. And that was another big challenge because there was very little communication. And, uh, you know, I would try to always let him know, you know, I, I still had permission on the property, but typically on this other 40 acres, I don't really step foot in it unless I've got a deer that I want to go after. You know, I just basically leave it, you know, completely uh, free of any uh, any human center intrusion. So, you know, he was in there. He had a couple other blinds set up and stuff like that. So that was a big challenge to try to work around that. And um, one of the things I did do that, that got me on back on a, a mature buck in daylight on that property is I kept thinking, okay, there was a – so to set the picture up, there's a, about a 60-acre cornfield across the road. And then there's our farm adjacent to that right across the road and then there's a, this other 40 and a lot of these deer come out of this cedar swamp cedar thicket and they transition down this big creek bed and then they head across the road to the cornfield so i knew these where these uh these bucks were bedding or you know, these deer in general and um and i knew they had to get from that those bedding areas 
across my field, across the cedar thicket, you know, from where this guy was hunting over these corn, you know, these ag fields. So I kept thinking about uh, terrain features. And one of the things that I think often gets overlooked is that terrain features are security cover. This property is it's fairly open property. It's a, you know, fairly open, um, closed canopy uh, woods. There hasn't been any logging really in the last probably 20 years. Um, so there's not a lot of, you know, thick security cover that a mature buck would typically want to move in daylight. Um, but what I did found through a little bit of hunting observation and moving around some cameras, um, I found where these bucks were slipping through. And it was probably only about 150 yards from where that other hunter was hunting and where he was accessing. And I had multiple mature bucks, you know, mature as in three and a half, um, you know, coming through there, through this little pinch on this bench flat, you know, heading back and forth. And um, so that was one of the different observations I did make is, you know, you have to be thinking like that mature buck. And I think, you know, oftentimes we get, we get really caught up in, thinking about security cover, which is absolutely important, but people need to understand that terrain features are just as much security cover as they are, you know, actual, you know, uh, thick security cover. And, and I think they can even be better because there's a lot of other advantages to terrain features from, you know, your thermals, your wind, your actual site advantage, you know, there's so many different things I know that, uh, that you've discussed in this podcast before. Yeah, and I think it's important that terrain features, like my property is a prime example where there's elevation changes all over the place, and I'm able to stack deer in these terrain features. I give them some visual. One of the examples I gave in the podcast I mentioned earlier was, you know, if you look down a hillside, there's a key point on a hillside. A lot of people want to stack their deer up on the shoulder of a hillside, or they call it the military crest. I actually push my deer down. I want my deer way lower than that. And if I create better features at a lower point, I can stack and hide deer a little bit easier, and so they can't see me, particularly in gully situations. So one of the things you can start doing is implementing, excuse me, walls of cover in certain certain aspects of it. You can put in benches or trenches, whatever you want to call them, and then you can create segregation or pockets. And one of the things I mentioned yesterday in this other podcast was I was talking about, you know, creating lean trees. We're coming in with machines and uprooting trees and changing the elevation, a height of those trees to conceal deer at certain points along the hillside. And that's a strategy I've been using for, you know, several years now. And, you know, to Colin's point, these little elevation changes, it may only be like a 10-foot elevation change or a 20-foot elevation change, but depending, you know, on, on the type of contour, you know, within that elevation change, you know, flat spots, slopes, et cetera, you can really start stacking deer in certain locations and again, those concealment points, I think, do a lot, at least for creating, like you, you mentioned earlier, like a thermal benefit or cooling benefit, you know, in certain instances, just to keep them out of the weather. I've, I've had a couple hunts, I think it was two years ago, I had snuck, you know, down a, a ravine, and these deer were up, again, at this key point location, and I snuck into these deer at like a slight angle behind like an evergreen, like, I don't even know, I think it might have been a, it was a young hemlock swamp that I came out of. And I'm coming up in there and I'm seeing these deer up on this hillside and it was a snowstorm and I waited to hunt these deer in a snowstorm. And again, it snuck right up and they were just on the bottom side of that hill and they were using that to shield them from the storm that was coming across. It was, it was kind of westerly storm at that point in time, but it just reminds me, Colin, to your point, like these deer are going to be, you know, incrementally moving in certain locations and you can kind of predict their, 
you know, their preference, you know, based upon the weather conditions, et cetera. So great, excellent point, really excellent point. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And another thing, just kind of building off that too is, you know, so you've got these terrain features as a security cover, and then just like what you were saying is you can start adding those habitat improvements on top of those things. And this kind of goes back to a Jim Ward strategy. I know, you know, Jim Ward's been a contributor to this podcast, we, and uh, we both worked with him. And, and, um, and that's where, you know, Jim Ward really likes to use those areas that those bucks naturally want to bet at. But we're going to manipulate them a little bit to, you know, design them and create them around how you're going to hunt the property, hunter access, you know, different things like that. And that's one of the things that I've really tried to hone in on, on this property through, you know, really studying mapping. And I've, I've gotten a little bit more into, you know, uh, Cal Topo and LIDAR mapping and really kind of breaking down the details. And um, I tell you what, there's a lot that I often overlook on some properties that, you know, either before I'm going consulting or whatever, I pull up map and I start looking at properties and, you know, kind of getting a good general idea of, of how I think I want to lay it out, you know, mm-hmm. and, and that's one of the things that I have to keep going back to on our property and keep reviewing it. And, um, you know, those things are going to change a little bit, but overall, you know, with hunting pressure and stuff like that, they might change, but overall you have to keep going back to, you know, how that mature buck wants to act the whitetail biology behind things, the herd dynamics, and then adding that habitat layer to it. And, you know, it just can be absolutely dynamite. So that was kind of some different challenges from the season. And then, you know, kind of, you know, keying off that, some some big changes I'm going to make in this year. I've got another section of the farm that it's kind of like a 60-yard wide easement that runs probably about a quarter of a mile. And uh, I just released a, I did a, YouTube, a short YouTube video the other day, and I did some um, some different cutting work back there and did some, uh, building a travel corridor that's going to run down through it. And, um, the idea is to really flow and funnel deer down through this travel corridor against this ag field and really bring them down into, you know, basically a giant hub. And, um, I'm going to be building, I got a natural spring at the end of this hub. Uh, it's where I killed a, a real nice buck last year. And, um, so I've got a micro food plot. I've got a travel corridor. I've got several different licking branches, and I've got a natural spring that I'm going to dig out a little bit, and I'm going to make a pinch point there. And then uh, I'm going to be doing some pretty cool different things. I'm going to try to film all, as much of it as I can this year um, in kind of a series on new development on our farm. And uh, I'm going to have kind of a whole travel corridor with lots of layers of screening in there. And I'm going to do you know, a pollinator mix. And that pollinator mix is going to be frost seeded with, you know, a, a perennial clover blend. And I want to try to get as much diversity and screening and compartmentalization as I can in these areas of our farm and specifically uh, in this area. But I think, that, you know, that kind of pertains to a lot of properties as far as trying to compartmentalize and take advantage of every square foot on your farm. You know, like you said at the beginning of the podcast, a lot of our clients that we work with, a lot of guys um, that are probably listening to this podcast, we've got smaller properties, and you really have to work on maximizing as much of that property as you can, you know, in order to, to see those mature bucks move in daylight. So, Colin, I want you to kind of be very descriptive, and I want to talk about the travel corridor. I want to talk about the size of it, the type of species you cut, 
the type of layering system that you're going to employ, anything you're going to do to make that more accessible and utilized by deer. Let's let's break that down because I think that's an important piece of this this design you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. So to kind of paint the picture, uh, kind of going back to that. So this stand in particular, one of the biggest challenges with the stand, it's, it's an awesome spot, but one of the biggest challenges I've got to walk through just about the heart of the property to get to it. And, you know, many clients have probably heard me say a stand is really only as good as, as when you can get in there and hunt it, you know, as the, as the access. So that's when one of the challenges where I know if I can get in there under the right wind conditions, the right weather conditions, I've got a good chance of killing, you know, my number one, you know, target deer on the farm. Um, and I, and I have, so, um, it's kind of set the scene up. So it's kind of an inside corner is what it is. And, there's an adjacent property owner and he's actually got about a half acre food plot and he's got a box blind and we got access to this and we actually bought this property. I think it was about three or four years ago. And, um, originally I just caught a a trail down it and, um, you know, just for deer movement flow and was not really going to do a lot with it because it's only right around 60 yards wide. Um, and I knew he, you know, the other, uh, neighbor had a food pot down there and had a box blind. So I kind of observed, you know, how he hunted a little bit. Uh, unfortunately, he doesn't live at the property. I've been trying to get a hold of him just to meet him, introduce myself, you know, let him know what I'm doing. And um, unfortunately, I can't find his contact. So, you know, I'm just kind of, I've been observing kind of he's, how he's hunted things over the last couple of years, contacted, you know, through a couple of neighbors. So, you know, he basically, I think, just hunts the rifle season, you know, as far as from what I can see. And um, so I've decided to, to kind of develop this travel corridor a little bit more. And it's mainly kind of a bunch of aspen. Um, it's got some some uh, ash in it. Um, it's got a couple red pine. It's got a bunch of autumn olive. And, uh, oh, let's see, what else has it got? It's got some scattered apple trees and a couple pear trees in it too. So one of the things I've wanted to do is kind of increase the food value coming all the way down this travel corridor so kind of starting at the one end it's just got some aspen stuff like that i'm starting to open it up a little bit and then i'm opening up around around a lot of these apple trees creating a lot of licking branches and trying to really increase the food value as you come down this travel corridor you know getting down to this micro plot and obviously you know i'm going to lose some of these deer going to the neighboring uh, food plot you know that's just a given you you can't um you can't, you know, direct them all. But my main focus with this travel corridor is I want these bucks to be able to stay in a security cover down this travel corridor uh, in daylight and scent check on a north-northwest wind. And, you know, they can be 20, 30 yards off the ag field, and they're just inside of this food plot. And, um, and then they're going to make their way all the way down to this hub. And uh, this hub's probably got about three or four different trails coming into a micro, you know, uh, clover food plot. And uh, so it just sets up really nice. So that's really my main goal. And then I'm going to also have a new 360 blind this year that's going to be set up on kind of an opposite side inside corner. And that way I can hunt it on, uh, in total, it'll probably be about four different winds. So if I've got a south-southeast wind, or if I've got a north north northwest wind, um, I can still hunt this spot. And um, so I'm going to be building several layers of screening. And one of the things I'm going to be doing is 
going back to another, you know, hunting season challenges, I've got another neighbor that uh, it's a older couple and she likes going out to the back of her property and planting trees and she runs around her gator and stuff like that, which obviously, you know, it's great. Um, but you know, she likes to do that stuff all fall, which is, which is, you know, your, your worst nightmare for trying to return <laughs> bucks and dead. Right. Um, so, you know, that's kind of been another challenge. And so my plan this year is to really devote a lot of my, you know, resources and time into building a really good wall of, of, um, I'm going to bring in a little bit of fill dirt. Um, and then I'm going to plant as much miscanthus as I can, a bunch of pine, and I'm going to do also a bunch of um, willow and then um, a hybrid poplar. So I'm really going to layer a lot of screening there because another reason why I want to do the willow and the poplar is because it's kind of a lowland area, mm-hmm. and I take advantage of using those water resources that I've got, especially with my sandy soil. And, um, and I really want to use those water advantages. I got a natural spring there. I'm going to dig out a little bit of a water hole, use some of that fill dirt as, you know, some more screening. And, um, so yeah, we're going to see how it works. I'm, I'm pretty excited to, to kind of develop this new, you know, right around two acres. Yeah. Of our a, farm. It sells, um, it's this intricate layout here and the layering scheme is, is interesting. I'm just going to throw out one little thing, at least that I do, and this is one of my secrets to my design and layouts, is I have a tendency to utilize willows quite often through the property, and I typically use them for you know building kind of hedgerow systems or movement trails, and depending on the porosity, sometimes you can actually build fencing out of it. So you've seen people take, you know, certain types of material, and they coppice it, and in this case, I'm taking, you know, long willow stems and I'm interlacing them so animals can't get through it. In fact, it saved my butt this year. I was hunting and a buck came through and he walked the edge just like he's walking a hedgerow, right? He's very, very close, like seven yards from me. <laughs> and he he caught some wind and he wasn't sure what it was. Well, he tried to get through the willows and because it's like a fence, he actually couldn't penetrate his antlers. He couldn't get his antlers through to get downwind from me. So... You know, in some instances, you can use these, you know, these these type of, you know, layouts as, as almost a defense mechanism for yourself, which I think think is an interesting concept. I think we think very offensively in our in our jobs, but in some examples, you can think somewhat defensively and keep them away from you. So you could actually box in your hunting location with willow. So it's something just to think about. Another point I wanted to bring up with you, Colin, is you've got sandy soil and. I know this has been a topic that we've already discussed previously, and we'll probably talk about that more in future podcasts, but you've got this wet area. I don't know if it's a seep or natural spring or vernal pool, whatever the example is, you know, do you feel like that can be leveraged from a, like increasing its volume or decreasing its volume? Do you, are you spreading water across the landscape? Like, have you thought about really using that for a multi-purpose? Because in some of these areas that I'm working in, you're using seeps and, you know, you're benefiting the wildlife and just not the deer for that matter. I mean, there's a lot of aquatic species of plants and then obviously aquatic insects and salamanders, frogs, turtles, snakes, you name it, like those particular areas. So, you know, it becomes this, uh, I guess, I don't want to say metropolis, but it becomes this very focal point for a lot of different animals, including, you know, salamanders that like to breed in those areas. And that's my kids like salamanders, so that's this is kind of why I'm bringing this up. Um, so we're we're, build, 
I'm building salamander habitat on the weekends with my kids, you know, and it's funny, like, this is so off topic, but like, that's some of the things I'm doing with my kids to get them in this game of life. Because if I'm building these little vernal pools or these, you know, kind of small patchwork where I may do a spillway or a spur, and then I can, you know, set it up. So there's certain aquatic species, et cetera. I mean, you know, this is where we do our little salamander catching, and they'll do that, you know, all, you know, summertime long. But anyhow, what, what are you using those areas for? And I'm just kind of wondering, these temporary pools or permanent pools of water, what do you think about them on the landscape? Yeah, no, 100%. And that's that's one of the things that I've kind of come full circle with. You know, I, I see we talked a lot about, you know, I do a lot with, you know, integrating cover crops and high diversity and minimal till and all that stuff. And, um, you know, I, I got thinking more about this area, you know, just kind of reexamining it. And, um, yeah, it's just got this great natural spring coming out of the ground. And uh, I've dug into it a little bit, you know, made kind of a little water hole out of it. And uh, it just kind of hit me this year. I've got a food plot adjacent to it, and that food plot has always done really well. And, you know, I've, I've just been thinking more about it. And, and I'm like, you know what, I, we own more property here. I said I've got more, you know, available square footage where I really need to maximize this area and, and, you know, to reach its full habitat potential. And, um, so that's one of the things where you kind of have to almost, you know, think in your mind and and try not to reinvent the wheel and, and, and stop fighting against, you know, how God has kind of created and laid all these things out. And so that's one of the things where, you know, one of the challenges with this particular situation is I've got a lot of free canary grass and, you know, um, there's a couple other grasses in there that, you know, like moisture. And, um, so one of the things I'm going to be working on is trying to get rid of some of those, you know, eradicate some of the grasses. Um, and I do have some switchgrass uh, established in there about two years ago. And I actually, I did an experiment and I, I drilled it right in, um, to existing grass just to see how it would do. And, um, uh, by golly, that stuff took off in there and, I came back and didn't even notice it. And I had four or five foot tall RC rock uh, switchgrass in there. So it's doing really well. I just need to control my other, other competition and grasses in there. And um, so that kind of gave me a good um, kind of idea and incentive to, to kind of keep developing this spot. And then as you know, I'm going to plan on trying to take that material. I'm going to try to dig some of that spring out and turn it into a little bit you know, like a, a little micro plant, a pond. Um, and then I'm going to, you know, as well as that, I'm going to add in, you know, some uh, red osher dogwood, silky dogwood, button bush, you know, stuff like that around that, you know, to add in more food value and, you know, really try to maximize that whole area, if that makes sense. It does. And one thing I would just mention for a lot of people is if you're worried about re-canary grass and we've uh, Todd Chippy. Well, I actually talked to Todd today, and I'm really excited to get back with him. He's been uh, working with his clients, and he's been doing presentations with his clients, getting them set up this year. But he, has, he hasn't been on the podcast in a while, Colin. But him and I had talked about a bunch of different strategies, and he was actually burning in wetlands, and I think that's really interesting. I talked to a burn burn guy here in New York, and um, I've got some stuff going on with uh, a fire group right now. And the one thing I was going to mention is one replacement plant for reed canary grass is Indian grass. And I think a lot of people overlook these replacement plants. And I, I had another podcast eons ago, it was probably a year ago, where I talked about replacement plants. And I look at 
you know, what's this particular plant providing for me in the landscape? And if I'm going to eradicate it, is there anything I can put in its place to, you know, to take over essentially? And to your point, you know, you were suggesting RC Big Rock or one of those particular varieties, they, they have more wet feet varieties or dry feet varieties. But, you know, one natural plant could be Indian grass as an example and does really well, not as well in snow load or ice load as a comparative, but it does well in those particular areas. Assuming you have some shrubbery adjacent to that where it can lodge up against it. That's why reed canary does so well because it, it just kind of morphs into the, you know, any existing shrubbery or treetops, et cetera. And people typically use that kind of for cover and structure. And there's better, we'll say, seeding plants. And a lot of those grasses are really good for bird life, which are going to, you know, increase the volume of seeds across your landscape, assuming you're, you're managing and mitigating some of these non-natives Adamalov came up earlier with Colin's point. So I just kind of add that to the conversation, Colin. Um, I kind of want to hear a little bit more. So we've talked layers. We've talked, you know, how to utilize water. What are some like lasting things that you think would be an improvement you want to make to put the cherry on top to this particular property? Anything kind of makes, I don't want to know if there's, maybe there's walls of cover. And I've got a question for you at the end of this. So anything else that you would think help would help improve this particular area? So one of the other things I'm going to be trying to do this year in our farm, and this doesn't apply to a lot of, well, it might apply to a decent amount of properties. just depends. I don't always recommend it to a lot of properties because it's very situation by situation. But I did a trial uh, earlier this year just to try it out and see how it works. I put in right around a half acre to an acre of corn um, this year and uh, actually outlined, um, I've got sort of kind of, lay things out. It's a long, uh, strip on the backside of our property. It's right around two acres. And, um, so I did about an acre and a half into the, uh, nitro boost from vitalized seed. And, um, and then I actually outlined that whole uh, plot with, uh, a corn. And, um, unfortunately we had this, you know, crazy spring drought uh, last year. And, um, so, you know, I was really surprised that the corn even grew. Um, I think we had like, I don't know, three or four weeks or maybe even five with very minimal rain. Um, and then we finally started to get some rain, you know, in July and August. And it started to take off. I hit it with a foliar, a little bit of nitrogen. Um, and some of my corn I actually got a couple of years out of, which I was really surprised. So, you know, I've got a little bit better soil than that section. And then I've actually got another section adjacent to it on the other side of our two track. That's, you know, again, it's really not doing anything for me. Um, it's just a bunch of you know, warm season, I'm sorry, you know, cool season, uh, you know, Johnson grass and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So it's really not doing much, you know, for me as far as, you know, habitat and even upland bird or anything. So I'm going to take a, a section of that, probably around an acre to two acres, and uh, I'm going to I'm going to do some corn in there this year. And then I'm going to layer around that corn with a warm season uh, pollinator mix um, and maybe a little bit of switchgrass in there. Um, so that's one of the big things that, you know, I'm going to try to maximize my area with, again, going back to what I mentioned earlier, trying to get as much food as I can on there. But I don't really want to lose my cover aspect with adding that food. You know, a lot of times mm-hmm. most of the food other than typically corn you know, you're not getting any cover value. Um, so, you know, as well as trying to combat a lot of the deer that are heading across the road, you know, to the bigger uh, ag, ag fields, where if I can get a little bit more destination food and kind of hold a lot of these deer, you know, so it's in fairly close proximity to bedding, 
I think I can hold a couple more doe family groups on our property, which is one of my goals. And I've got enough food and I've got enough spatial distribution between bedding and different bedding uh, locations on a couple properties. And I think I can hold, you know, three or four doe family groups on our property consistently. And, um, and that really ties into my mature buck activity on our property and compartmentalizing all that food. Um, if that makes sense. No, it does make sense. And I think you laid out the picture pretty well. I followed the whole story. So last thing I want to ask you, and uh, this was asked to me, so I want to hear your, your opinion on it and I'm not going to weigh in. I'm just going to let you talk walls of cover. This is a concept that a lot of people have been talking about since we started introducing on the podcast. You know, this isn't, you know, Jim Ward's or John Teeters or anybody's concept. These, these concepts have been somewhat in play for some period of time. And I feel like a lot of people that introduce the, the concept are like, when do I use it and why? And so my parting question to you is when you're building walls of cover and maybe it's species contingent, like some are, you know, better stump sprouters or root sprouters and, you know, some tree species are, you know, depending on the age class, it may not be a good hinge cut tree. You know, when you're installing these on the landscape, what do you principally use them for? And then how do you like to shape them to benefit, you know, whatever, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but if it's travel, if it's cover, you know, if it's segregation, what, what do you use it for? So those are my two questions for you. Yeah. So then that's a, that's a great question. Um, so I'll kind of go back to, I'll bring up an example, uh, which should correlate perfectly with this. Um, so I was out cutting on a client property, uh, last week was the last week. Yeah, I believe it was last week. Um, and, um, he really knew his property well, he knew roughly what he wanted. And, um, so he hired me for one day to come out and, and do some cutting. And, uh, so he's got a, a long area. I'm going to focus on more specifically, this one area of the property that would kind of apply to this question. He's got a long strip against a swamp, and he's got a micro plot on one end, and then he's got another inside corner on the other end. And um, he was trying to get a lot of deer to move down this field edge towards him. And um, so what, what we ended up doing is we ended up putting a wall of cover probably 100 to 150 yards wide or I'm sorry, uh, long. And, um, we just laid down a lot of soft maple and, um, you know, it was really good hinge cutting trees. So that really helped direct a lot of, uh, traffic and flow. And I think those deer are really going to follow that edge. And I think this is kind of a situation by situation basis, you know, based on the property. And, and one of the questions I always get asked, you know, while I'm cutting or something like that and consulting, um, is, you know, how long do you make these walls? You know, sometimes, you know, one of the concerns from the client is, you know, I don't want these deer to go towards the neighbors. You know, I don't want them to take this this wall and just, you know, completely avoid this area because we blocked off some of these trails. So I think that depends on the situation. And I've messed around with this a little bit on some properties. And from what I've seen and what I've, you know, talking, with, you know, from Jim Ward a lot um, and working with him, you know, I think in bedding areas, um, you know, I like to make those walls, you know, right around like 30 to 50 yards long. Um, and, and ideally I want to try to make those walls as narrow as I can, you know, because going back to that kind of spatial distribution within bedding areas, 
you know, we're trying to maximize these areas so we can fit as many deer as we can, you know, as possible in these areas. So, and that was another challenge to this property, you know, this property I was working on. Um, he had a, a two or three acre, you know, area. And so, you know, luckily we had a swamp edge there. So I really used that swamp edge and cut a lot of trees down in that swamp. And, you know, luckily the swamp wasn't that deep. And so he kind of had a travel corridor that ran in the swamp actually. And the swamp was, it was shallow enough where a lot of these bucks were running on the outside of it. And then we put another travel corridor on the inside in his timber. And now we've got sunlight where we can plant that inside travel corridor all the way through there, you know, with alfalfa, chicory, clover, um, and we can add more diversity, more food. Um, so, you know, one of the things that is a challenge is, you know, you've got these small areas and you've got these really big, tall trees in mm. the situation. You've got to try to organize this stuff, you know? And um, so that's where a lot of times you just got to, you got to drop the trees and you got to go through and you got to cut openings and you got to try to not, you know, block these deer off, but keep it, you know, compartmentalized enough where the, where the property and the bedding area still flows, if that makes sense. Um, so, you know, that's kind of an example. I don't know if that exactly answers your question. No, no, it was, it was very good. I, I think I followed, and I think you were specific enough for some people because they, I think they wonder about the depth, you know, the distance. I've cut some walls that are, we cut a death wall. Josh and I cut a, a death wall. I don't even know if I've ever talked about this on this podcast, but I think I will talk about it. Um <laughs> I'm just going to say something real quick. So if you guys get if anybody wants to get into this business, you, you've got to cut for a long time. I mean, you can't just jump into this thing. I think a lot of people want to get into this world, either from a, from my side, like a business side and, and consulting side, or they, they want to do it on their own property. Really, some things are left to professionals. And this is one of those, I would say, situations where you've got to have pretty good prowess in the in the field and know how to run a chainsaw. We had cut, Josh and I had cut a big line, and it was probably, I don't know, 300, 300 yards maybe, 300 yards, and it was a death wall. And I, I, I'm, it, was my, it was my decision. Here goes the, uh, you know, here goes the other guy going, hey, watch this. <laughs> and uh, he, I got this giant line, right, and it's, I mean, it just dominoes all the way down. Like, you know, we look at yep. each other and like, all right, and you know you're going to have hang-ups after, you're going to miss trees. So you got to yep. go do clean. You got to do cleanup. Now cleanup in those situations is the hardest, hardest, hardest thing to do. So strike my partner jumps in this 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 pile and he's cutting. Now I'm about forty feet away from him, maybe forty five feet away from him, and uh, he cut. He rips. To, you know, I've already got some of these trees pre cut. He rips a tree, and one of the trees in the pile in front of us broke off, swung around like a baseball bat, hit another tree that was hinge cut. 40 feet from me and it came off the stump like a baseball bat and slammed me in the side and I, it was a big tree and and what i'm trying to present to folks is i don't think i've spoke about this on the podcast but you know i almost got really hurt in that instance and i wasn't even the one doing the cutting and i was in one of those positions where you're far enough away where you think you're safe and you're not actually safe and then when you're hinge cutting trees you know, typically when you're felling trees, some of the safest locations are right up next to the tree. And when you're some distance away, you can be in harm's way. So, you know, just really, you know, step back and say, do I have the capability to do this? And guys that do this professionally, me being one of them, 
you know, run into issues every now and again. And, you know, that's certainly scary. So I just want to mention, if you're cutting big lines or dealing with big timber, you know, those are the things to be cautious about. And sometimes it's just easier to fell trees. And, you know, that's fine too. You can stack trees up, you can come over with the tractor, you can stack a few trees up, you know, in, in a way where you get this kind of same coverage and it works just as well. It may not be living, but it will be structure and things will grow up in between it. So I, I wanted to just, you know, talk about my, we call the death wall. So just, Josh and I always refer back to that when we're cutting timber, <laughs> you know, let's not, yeah. die, let's not die today, you know, let's just live, yeah. you know? So yeah. I think it's important for folks that are, are even considering this. And, you know, if you don't, if you don't have this experience doing it in the field, how can you, can, how can you recommend it to people? So Colin, you were talking about all these things that you're trying you know, you're elevating ground so you can plant, you know, uh, miscanthus grass in dry ground. I mean, you're thinking through a lot of different issues so, you know, you can be successful. It's like you're trying all these different things. And I think I, I'm giving you a lot of credit because I think a lot of people just, hey, I read this book from uh, somebody, somebody, and, you know, I, I know how to do layout now. It's like, yeah, I go cut for like 10 years and, and call me back, you know, and that's, that's kind of that's yeah. kind of what I've told guys lately that want to get into this, you know. So, and and just to kind of correlate off that really quick, um, you know, I've been getting uh, quite a few just different inquiries and, and you know some consulting and different stuff like that. And um, you know, I've got several clients that you know they call me and they said, hey, you know, I've been watching this guy or I've been following this, and but I'm I'm just confused. You know, I don't know where to go, and and um, so. You know, one of the things I try to correlate to clients is don't, and this is a knock on any consultant or, or any specific guy or anything like that. There's several great guys out there and um, I respect and have learned several things from a lot of different guys. But, you know, one of the things I think for myself, I have to keep going back to, and I try to keep, you know, correlating that back to my clients is, you know, you have to base a lot of what you're doing off of, you know, the fundamentals of, of white tail biology, you know, herd dynamics, and how deer function, you know, uh, you know, terrain features, your habitat, your surrounding areas, um, you know, you know, you can't base things off of, off of just what someone says uh, on a video or, or anything like that. Um, you know, I think like you were saying, you know, getting out there, doing the work, you know, working with other guys, um, man, I have learned, you know, so much doing that and, and don't be afraid to try new things and, you know, you know, keep, continue to keep learning on your property. You know, it, it's amazing how many times I've gone to my property and, you know, I, I've, I've walked it probably a hundred times and I keep changing things and tweaking things. And, you know, I've had a habitat master plan for this property for a couple of years now, but it's changed and things have gotten tweaked a little bit based on outside, you know, influences and my hunting strategy and hunting pressure. And um, so just something I wanted to, to uh, follow up on and, and kind of end on. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I think you have to think through the evolution of you, evolution of your property, and don't be so, you know, stuck on a particular guy, but also, you know, don't get confused at the same point. I think most of the time when I'm consulting with people, it's giving them the foundation. Like I played sports in college, so I'm all about the fundamentals. Maybe I wasn't in college and I should have been. But, you know, I use the foundation of that, like my feet setting. So I know how to position my body so I can be more productive. It's the same thing. It's knowing the fundamentals of design and layout. And some of these design and layout concepts that you will see are only on paper. They're not in practice. And that's mm -hmm. the one thing I'll say. 
You could have these guys that are, um, Todd and I were talking about this today, these keyboard, you know, gurus that, you know, you know, suggesting to do something on layout. How, what have they actually done? And have they hunted areas that are of the most difficult, uh, most difficult status across the landscape? And has that allowed them to be more tactful in their approach? And, the, you know, the guy that designs it, that is used to a plethora of, you know, 40 to 70 to 80 deer per square mile. And they've got, you know, numerous age classes versus, you know, a guy that really doesn't have, you know, that same scenario approaches things differently, just naturally because of how cautious and, you know, hard it is to predict movement. So you're very just more tactical in your approach and technical in kind of your, some of your layout aspects. And, you know, I'll shape properties so I can get deer to move certain ways, so the hunting's easier. I can slow them down, speed them up. Like my own property, when I first bought it, you know, the deer were entering at a certain time. I needed to speed it up. I didn't need them to show up at 10. I needed them to show up at 7. So I actually have data that shows over the years, based on the improvements, their movement as time is increased three hours. So that gets them off my neighbor's. I better watch my mouth here. That gets them <laughs> off my neighbor's property uh, before they get in and hunt them. And, yep. and that's changed the game for me. And the other thing I'm dealing with is like, I'm literally going to pick a harder property to design. You've got North slopes, you know, okay access, you know, a lot of, a lot of undulations. So you're dealing with a lot of, a lot of cold areas. So there's some warm, some cold spots, a lot of elevation change, a lot of species diversity. I've got good mineral soil, which is huge. But like on the other side, I've got this like switchback road that deer, it's like, it's like a gauntlet. Like, so the deer are going to get killed you know, you're going to lose at least two to three deer a year just on the road. And then you've got major hunting pressure. It's like, pick your poison. And I knew this going into this. I said, if I could design this property, I can design any property in the in the, in the U.S., period. There's, there's nothing harder than this. But at the same point, I think people shouldn't put themselves up against that barrier. They should buy a better property in a better neighborhood, you know, and, and think about the parcels that you're buying and the limitations that exist. And and what that does to your, you know, potential outcome, you know, if you're going to be able to harvest a mature buck or be able to shoot a lot of deer, whatever your potential goals are, just from a harvest standpoint, I think that's a big thing, Colin, that I would relate to folks and, you know, don't buy the hardest property, buy the easiest property, buy in the best neighborhood, make it easy on yourself, not hard on yourself. <laughs> I think a lot of guys buy these parcels, like it's a good deal. It's like, that's great. It's a good deal, but is it the right property for you? And some, right. of, the, some of the things I think people you know, think about and uh, struggle with. And, you know, I think it's having kind of a real understanding. I can eliminate, I can look at a property in two seconds, say, nope, yep, nope, yep, nope, yep. And I've just looked at so many pieces. I can tell you all the deficiencies in about like a three minute cycle. And it's just mm -hmm. like, boy, I could have just saved you $200,000 and a bunch of headaches if we would have talked beforehand. And then I walk to those properties and they're, they're headache properties, but they become a challenge. And it's like, I talked to Josh today. He's like, how many challenges do you have? And I said, a lot this year. And he's like, that's awesome. I go, I know, because I'm learning every single time and I have to come up with new strategies for all these properties. So I like the problems. It's, yep. it's just a problem solving exercise for me. Yep. A hundred percent. And I can completely relate to that, you know, with, with my property here. And, and that's what, you know, like, just like you were saying, yeah, do I wish I had a really easy property that produced four and a half year olds every year? Yeah, absolutely. But you know what? I've, <laughs> I've learned so much off of our property and, you know, so many different aspects from poor soil to almost zero cover and, you know, hunting pressure and all these different things. And, 
I think that's really helped me to relate to a lot more clients and, and, you know, overall produce a better, better product and service. To, I, uh, yeah. And I, I want to be clear. I want those clients that are shooting four-year-olds. Okay. I, I, I want to be clear. If, if you want to shoot five-year-olds or older age class deer, I can get you there. I'm just yep. saying I'm dealing with a lot of folks that are just trying to shoot two-year-olds, just trying to build a herd up, just trying to experience a better hunt. And you know, there's, there's different, you're at different levels and that's really, that's okay. I mean, Listen, I'm, I'm at the level I'm at based on the area that I'm in. I can only, you know, this glass ceiling that you talked about earlier, that's where I'm at. I'm looking at food consumption per deer. I'm looking at, f- I'm, I'm, I'm at the foot-by-foot level. So I'm looking at the, the volume of food seasonally on a foot-by-foot level to anticipate deer utilization. I just went over there and did, I did an assessment of my property in respect to food value in a North Slope hillside because I got I to do a couple things to produce a little bit more food for late season. And I, I just had... You know, three shooter bucks on my property, and you know I don't need to keep any secrets at this point. They'll probably get hit by that that car, the cars that are going up that 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 racetrack by me. But you know, I I'm seeing the improvements really suck these deer later in the season than they've ever been. So they're on the property more. They're getting there early, and like I just feel like I haven't reached my glass ceiling with property improvements. And this is maximize your hunt, not maximize your habitat, because everything changes all the time based on my yeah. goals. So I think. I don't know. That's kind of where I'd like to end it. Anything from you, anything you want to say to the audience? No, I mean, I, yeah, I think we, I think we cover a lot. Hopefully you guys uh, had some takeaways and uh, yeah, appreciate you having me, uh, having me back on and look forward to uh, discussing more with you in the future. Yeah, so. you too. And, uh, and if anybody wants to get a, a hold of, of Colin this year, please do legendary habitat. He's a great resource. Uh, him and I are obviously friends. I'm happy to have him on this podcast. But, you know, he does it all. He'll he'll do the design for you. He'll, he does the work. He has the experience you in the work. It's important to hire somebody that actually does this in the field. They're the ones that are learning. They're the ones that can make better decisions when they're giving you consulting advice. But the guy that you work with, if he's not in the field at a high interval, that's not the guy I'm hiring. I want to hire the guy that has the experience in the field. It's not a guy that's creating this really cool map. Maps are cool. Maps give you the illusion or the understanding of what it could be. But it's the guy that actually has the experience to actually implement it in the field. There's too many of these guys out there that are doing this right now. They're doing it for business and money reasons. They're doing it to create their own allure. But it's it's not the guy that has the experience in the field. And the experience in the field is more meaningful than than the research sometimes that you can do or the great drawings that folks do. And and that's why I want to make sure that folks are picking folks that have this experience in your eco region that have dealt with your cultural situations or your deer quality or your deer herd, your deer dynamics, that have that experience, that understand what they eat and when, and have a plan, not a short seasonal plan. Not We don't produce you know food during the summer months. It's producing food all year long. And it's having a constant of cutting, burning, any technique that you want to employ that gives that opportunity to those particular deer. And my high horse is over. I'm done. I'm happy to have Colin back. Colin, we'll talk again probably in a couple months. And uh, good luck cutting the season. Be safe, and I'll talk to you soon. Well, hey, thanks a lot, John. I appreciate those kind words, and uh, appreciate you having me on. All right. Talk again. See you, man. Bye. Yep. Maximize Your Hunt is a production of Whitetail Landscapes. For more information on how John Teeter and his team of experts can help you maximize your hunt, check out whitetaillandscapes.com.